You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. If you're new to the podcast, some context for you. I've gotten a ton of value out of doing group therapy and watching others process their shit. In group, I can see other people's patterns and behaviors much more clearly because they aren't my patterns and behaviors, but rather they're adjacent to mine. It's such a relief. I want to share this relief with you via this podcast, wherein I practice skills while actually in the thick of shit. Each episode, I typically do an introduction and provide some context. Then I play a recording of me actively dealing with shit. This isn't me talking about psychology or theories. I'm actually in distress, having strong emotions and strong urges. You're going to hear me crying, angry, numb. But my intention is always to move through an emotion, never to stay there. So stick with me, and we'll actually come out on the other side by the end of the episode. Alrighty, let's hop to it. Welcome, welcome. I've got a fun one for you guys today. Well, fun is a relative term on this podcast. Um, The recording I'm going to be featuring and playing for you in a second is fun because I get to talk about some unexpected behavior from two of my former partners, which makes this episode feel a bit like like I'm messaging my best friends and being like, guys, you will never guess what just happened. Guys, you, listener, you'll never guess what just happened. So go grab a plate. I'm going to be dishing up some gossip. Brief orientation before I play the recording for you. Most of the skills that I'm going to be referencing today are from the DBT manual by Marsha Linehan. And DBT stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy, which is my therapy type of choice. It's the one that feels the best for my brain. Uh, The DBT manual is linked in the description, both in PDF form and where you can buy a hard copy. And whenever I'm quoting from the DBT manual, quoting? What am I? What is that? Am I from Minnesota? When I'm quoting, yes, when I'm quoting from the DBT manual or really anyone else's work other than my own, I turn on a bit of a reverb sound effect so that I sound like I'm in... An Indonesian mausoleum, or more accurately, an Indonesian mausoleum bathroom. I'm going to be referencing handouts from several of the DBT modules, and every time I do, I'll say something like, this is from Interpersonal Effectiveness, Handout 5, or this is from Distress Tolerance, Handout 2, so that you can follow along if you're so inclined. Oh, and since I forgot to do this on the last episode until the very end, I'm doing it here before I forget. A huge, huge thank you to my Patreon supporters. I've got such a lovely little group of folks who are so supportive. Sunny and Juicy, um, also Anonymous, Andrew, and my OGs, Anne and Ruth, who are also my sisters. All of you are eccentric, dark-splotched ice fish, which is a good thing, I promise, and are 95.5% of the reason that this podcast exists for public consumption. 
So thank you so very, very much. And if you, dear listener, would like to support this podcast, the link for my Patreon is in the description. All right. So the recording for today. I'm recording this commentary on April 7th, 2023. The recording I'm about to play for you is from June 18th, 2022, which is about 10 months ago or so. And I start off the recording feeling super gross and not knowing why, which of course means, you guessed it, it's time for some mindfulness practice, specifically observe and describe. But it takes me a bit to actually notice what my body is doing, which means that you're going to hear some pauses and they're long. (laughs) It's not like two or three seconds. It's like 15 or 30 seconds. And I love those in because I think it's important to demonstrate how mindfulness actually goes, at least for me. It's not immediate. It's not like I'm reading a novel. It's more like I'm doing a a real-time translation of an interpretive dance and translating it into a language I don't speak fluently. (laughs) Whereas observing my thoughts comes way easier. That does feel like I'm reading a novel in English. But body sensations and emotions, that's an interpretive dance that I'm translating into Spanish. So it takes some time. In particular, there's going to be a moment about 22 minutes in or so when I ask my wise mind a question and wait for the answer. And it legit took 30 seconds to hear an answer. And I left that whole pause in there because that's how long it took. This is on purpose. It's not a glitch. It's also not me being a lazy editor. And of course, lazy is a judgment, 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 judgment. And I'm watching myself over explain this because I'm anticipating that you'll be judging me. Isn't this round robin fun? Oh, a happy day. Uh, There are other moments where I'll sit in silence for a protracted length of time, five to 15 seconds or whatever. And again, that's me observing and listening to my body or listening to my wise mind. I don't always say in the recording that that's what I'm doing, but that's what I'm doing. So now that I've set your expectation of long moments of silence, let's go ahead and dive on into the recording. Past joy, take it away. Okay, so some trigger warning here if you have um, issues with discussions of vomit. Not in graphic detail. I'm just going to talk about feeling sick to my stomach for a bit. So if you're new to the podcast, talked a lot about the breakup that I had almost a year ago now. And my partner of two years broke up with me. I was living with him and also working for him. So the first like dozen episodes of the podcast, I'm going in and out of processing that and talking about sadness and grief and a whole host of other things. He and I went uh, no contact in November. I told him I didn't want to talk to him anymore. And that was, I think, three months after our breakup. I saw him once right before he moved away so he could drop off some of my things that I'd left over there. And I had an episode actually about that. Uh, That was episode 17 about anger. And then we didn't talk for, I think, a couple months after that. And all of this has been, uh, all of these boundaries have been mine, with me contacting him and saying, hey, this doesn't work for me. And then we started talking again, kind of slowly easing our way back in to just like being friendly with each other. And that's been going fine. And then yesterday he sent me a message asking if I would consider coming back to work for him remotely because uh, he no longer lives nearby. So that happened. And then a 
another former partner of mine from, God, like almost 15 years ago, who I dated for a year and a half in my early 20s. He's married now. Uh, he's been flirting with me, <laughs> I think, via text message. And I have been not handling this well. I woke up this morning to several messages from him, and I've been feeling like I'm going to throw up for the last couple hours. I don't know what's going on in my body. And so I thought I would try to use some skills to, I don't know, accept what I'm feeling. I don't know yet. I actually don't know what skill I'm going to use. So I thought I would demonstrate myself trying to figure out what skill to use or describe or something. So let's start with a mindfulness skill. Let's start by defining mindfulness. I'm going to be reading from Mindfulness Handout 1A. What is mindfulness? Intentionally living with awareness in the present moment, without judging or rejecting the moment, and without attachment to the moment. What are mindfulness skills? Mindfulness skills are the specific behaviors to practice that when put together make up mindfulness. So mindfulness skills, there's kind of two groups of them. There are what skills, which are what we do when we're practicing mindfulness. And then there's the how skills, which are how we do those things, how we do the what when we're practicing mindfulness. So mindfulness handout four has the what skills and they are observe, describe, and participate. And then mindfulness handout five are the how skills, non-judgmentally, one mindfully, and effectively. So putting those two together, we observe non-judgmentally, we observe one mindfully, we observe effectively, we describe non-judgmentally, we describe one mindfully, we describe effectively, and we participate non-judgmentally, we participate one mindfully, we participate effectively. So I'm going to do some observing and describing. Describing because it's hard to do just the observe without the describe on a podcast. (laughs) So uh, mindfulness handout for taking hold of your mind. What skills? So skill one is observe. Notice your body sensations coming through your eyes, ears, nose, skin, and tongue. Pay attention on purpose to the present moment. So what's happening right this second here where I am. Control your attention but not what you see. Push away nothing, cling to nothing. So don't change the present moment, accept the present moment and pay attention. Practice wordless watching. Watch thoughts come into your mind and let them slip right by like clouds in the sky. Notice each feeling rising and falling like waves in the ocean. Observe both inside and outside yourself. So outside are our five senses, touch, taste, Uh, hearing, sight, and smell. And then our inside things are, there's an acronym um, that I like to use, S-T-U-F, stuff, with only one F, which stands for sensations, thoughts, urges, and feelings, like emotions. Sensations, thoughts, urges, and feelings. Those are ways to practice observing. And then practicing describing helps me take a step back away from what I'm experiencing. So it's being intentional about the words I use. I have thoughts rather than I am my thoughts. So the difference between it's hopeless versus 
I'm having the thought that it's hopeless. So ways to practice describing. Put words on the experience. When a thought or feeling arises or you do something, acknowledge it. For example, say, sadness has just enveloped me, or stomach muscles are tightening, or a thought, I can't do this, has come into my mind. Label what you observe. Put a name on your feelings. Label a thought as just a thought, a feeling as just a feeling, an action as just an action, and then I added uh, an urge as just an urge. Unglue your interpretations and opinions from the facts. Describe the who, what, when, where that you observe. Just the facts. So this is a chance to describe just what is so. And finally, remember if you can't observe it through your senses, you can't describe it. Okay, so we're going to practice this for a bit here. And incidentally, some additional kind of context. Mindfulness skills are skills to observe what is so in the present moment. We cannot be mindful to the past and we cannot be mindful to the future. We can only observe the present moment. So I am observing that I have a ton of tightness in my chest and stomach. I have kind of a lump in my throat akin to when I am about to throw up, like my throat muscles both kind of where if I had an Adam's apple, where that would be kind of in the middle of my throat. And then also lower down kind of like the, the supersternal notch, the, um, right. The middle of my collarbone. So I have a lot of tightness there and it's actually moving up to kind of the back of my throat. Like there's something in my throat obstructing I feel something in my gut, like in my stomach, tightness. I feel like I need to burp or move something through my system. Like my stomach is super, super upset right now. Like there's so much tightness. It feels mostly in my throat. And I'm describing it as feeling sick to my stomach because the times when I've felt like I need to vomit, it's preceded immediately by that tightness in my throat. But really, like, my stomach doesn't actually feel upset. It's just my throat, kind of the back of my mouth. I'm having the thought that what's going on with my two former partners is unsafe. I'm having the thought that it's dangerous. I'm having the thought that I don't know what the fuck is going on. I'm having the thought that I'm attracting this. I'm having the thought that it's my fault that this is happening. I'm having the thought that I have no control or no say over what's going on. I'm having the thought that I don't have a voice. I'm having the thought that my voice doesn't matter. I'm having the thought that I don't know what to do now. 
I'm having the thought that I'm at the affect of whatever they're doing. Like I, I'm having the thought that all I can do is respond to them. I'm having the thought that there's nothing I can do to take charge or be proactive. I'm having the thought that my therapist would be very unhappy with me. I'm having the thought that my close inner circle would also be very unhappy with me. Because I've been doing a lot of really intentional work in exposure to identify my values and look at actually how I want my life to be. And this feels like moving backwards, both in terms of a personal relationship and also in terms of a work relationship. The relationship one being flirting with my former partner from like 15 years ago and the work one being going back to work with my more recent former partner. I'm having the thought that engaging in either one of those is a betrayal of the work that I'm doing. I'm having the thought that either one of those would be moving backwards. I'm having the thought that either one of those would be occupying my time and energy in things that don't actually serve me. And I'm having the thought that that would just get in the way of finding what would actually serve me. I'm having the thought that they, they're both a distraction. And I'm having the thought that like the universe has a sick sense of humor. I'm having the thought that this is like kind of a cruel irony. I'm having the thought that all of this is a test that I am failing. So I can almost guarantee I know what my therapist would say if I were in session with them. They would ask me, what does my wise mind say? So let's talk about wise mind. Wise mind is a tool for seeing what's real and true. And the way to get to wise mind is through mindfulness skills. And I mentioned those earlier. Those are mindfulness handout four and five. The what are observe, describe, and participate. And the how on mindfulness handout five. The hows are non-judgmentally, one mindfully, and effectively. So in practicing observing, describing, and participating in a way that is non-judgmental, one mindful, and effective, this is how I can get to wise mind. And Wise mind is a tool for seeing what's real and what is true. So let's talk about wise mind. Wise mind is mindfulness handout three, if you want to follow along. So in the DBT manual, it's described as a Venn diagram where one circle is reasonable mind, the other circle is emotion mind, and the overlap of those two is wise mind. I don't like this representation. Um, first off, reasonable mind. I don't like that as a description of that. I prefer computing or thinking mind because I can have thoughts that are not reasonable. I can have thoughts that are not logical. It's what my brain does. My brain computes and thinks. So I prefer to think of it as thinking mind and emotion mind. And there is a graphic on the website and also one on social media where I have kind of my preferred version of this diagram, both a, a very simple one that just has thinking mind and emotion mind and where wise mind is. 
And then I have a much more detailed one, which has all the descriptions of those states that I'm going to get into now. So in the DBT manual, again, Marsha Linehan, the author, calls it reasonable mind. I'm just going to replace that with thinking mind, even though that's not what's written down on the page. So thinking mind is cool, rational, task-focused. When in thinking mind, you are ruled by facts, reason, logic, and pragmatics. Values and feelings are not important. And this is in comparison to emotion mind. Emotion mind is hot, mood-dependent, emotion-focused. When in emotion mind, you are ruled by your moods, feelings, and urges to do or say things. Facts, reason, and logic are not important. So that's what's on the page. Now I'm going to talk about it a little bit more broadly. Thinking mind goes on in our prefrontal cortex, that part of our brain. Uh, Our prefrontal cortex is the front part of our frontal lobe, if you care about neuroscience. And it's involved in planning complex cognitive behavior, decision-making, what we would consider, what humans consider higher-order thinking. And that's juxtaposed to our emotion mind, which is our limbic system. That's reactive, it's fight or flight, it's kind of our, our alligator, our lizard brain, if you will. I can tell when I'm in thinking mind, when I am problem solving and getting stuff done and I'm focused, I'm judging, I'm insistent, I'm making things mean something, so I'm making meaning. I'm interpreting, I am task-oriented, I am frantic, I'm controlling, I'm black and white, It's very planning and problem-solving oriented. It ignores my feelings. When I'm in thinking mind, I tend to be ignoring my feelings. And that is juxtaposed to emotion mind. And I can tell I'm in emotion mind when I'm extreme. I'm feeling extreme emotions or feeling very manic. Um, So extreme anger, sadness, fear, hurt, uh, happiness, love, euphoria, bonding, anticipation, hope, fun. I can tell that I'm in emotion mind when I'm reactive, when I'm feeling out of control, when I'm feeling desperate or urgent. And I'm also in very black and white in my thinking. I can tell I'm in emotion mind when I'm assigning blame, when I'm mind reading, like making assumptions about what other people are thinking, when I'm overgeneralizing, when I'm catastrophizing. So there are similarities between thinking mind and emotion mind. They both tend to be very black or white and kind of frantic. Now, wise mind in the DBT manual is described as the overlap of those two things. And I disagree with this um, because that depiction means that there is some of thinking mind that we need to reject or ignore when we're in wise mind, and that there is some of emotion mind that we need to reject or ignore in order to be in wise mind. And my first DBT instructor suggested an alternative, that wise mind is a circle that goes around both the thinking mind and emotion mind. It is taking in all the information that our bodies are sharing with us. And so wise mind is the wisdom within each person. It's seeing the value of both reason and emotion. It's bringing left brain and right brain together and is the middle path. Beyond that, that's what's in the DBT manual. I'm going to add some things. So as I said before, wise mind is 
I think using all of my thinking and all of my emotions, honoring both my thoughts and my emotions. Wise mind is validating. It's dialectic. It holds two seemingly opposing things to be true at the same time. It's very both and. It considers both the long and short term. And I can tell when I'm in wise mind, when I can see my machinery running, when I have perspective, when I'm able to be effective. Um, I'm considering both the short and long term. I am able to be balanced and flexible. I can be calm. I am practicing acceptance. I'm able to hold dialectics. I'm able to hold two seemingly opposing things to be true at the same time. And rather than being black or white, I'm able to see things in a grayscale. I like to think of it as both thinking and emotion mind because there's nothing wrong with thinking and there's nothing wrong with feeling. The Venn diagram or wise mind is depicted as the overlap of those two things seems to imply that there's a lot of thinking that isn't wise and there's a lot of emotion that isn't wise. And I don't know, it doesn't feel great to me. Um, As my first DBT instructor said, it's both thinking and emotions are really, really useful. It's very useful for humans to think because we're not that tough, fast or strong, especially compared to other animals. So it's really useful for us to be able to do problem solving and to use tools. And then emotion mind is really useful because emotions promote action. Uh, They are our first Wi-Fi. They are what networked us together before we had language. We express emotions. They show up in our body language. They show up in our faces and in our posture. And it's a way to communicate to other people without language. So both thinking and emotions are really, really super useful. It's all our body trying to tell us something. It's all signals to ourselves saying, hey, this doesn't feel good. Avoid that. That's bad. Like it's trying to protect us. It's trying to protect our relationships. It's trying to protect us from like bodily injury. It's trying to protect us from rejection or embarrassment or a whole host of other things. So like all of those signals can be really, really useful, which is why I don't like the idea of wise mind just being the overlap of thinking and emotions, because it implies that some thinking and some feeling aren't part of wise mind. I'm like, no, you, why, would you, why would you reject some of that information? Take it all in. So yes, let's talk about wise mind then in terms of my current situation. Because clearly, like me feeling sick to my stomach, I think that's very much emotion mind. Like having the thought that I'm in danger, having the thought that I don't have any control, um, having the thought that I'm kind of at the affect of other people's behavior and I don't get to choose what I want for myself. I think that's uh, emotion mind talking. And yes, having the thought that I have no control and that I have to, I'm only getting to respond to other people's behavior and I don't get to choose things for myself. That's very catastrophizing. So knowing that I'm in emotion mind, what do I do with that information now? That's a great question.
Ugh. Okay, fine. God, I hate it when this happens. Like, if I sit here and just kind of sit with that question for a while, eventually my brain will be like, you know what the answer is? But it's always really, really quiet. And it takes a while. It's like the shy kid in the back of the class that will only raise their hand after the teacher has asked a question and no one else raises their hand. (sighs) What do I do with my emotions? Like now that I know that I'm in emotion mind, how do I get to wise mind? Validation and acceptance. Motherfucker. (laughs) So one of the things that I learned from my first DBT instructor was that there's no such thing as an overreaction. Everything is caused and is proportional to the cause. If there's a reaction, the reaction is caused by something and is proportional to the cause. And typically I think something is an overreaction because I can't see the cause or the part of the cause that I can see doesn't explain the magnitude of the reaction. But usually what that means is there's more of the cause that I can't see. It's like an iceberg. There's more under the surface that I'm not aware of. So I have found that the more effective, non-judgmental way to view my reactions is to go in with the assumption that, hey, my reaction makes sense. Even if I don't see how it makes sense, even if I don't like what the reaction is, even if I can't see what the cause is, or even if I can see what some of the cause is, but it doesn't seem like that's enough to cause such a large reaction, then it's more effective to actually assume there's more cause that I can't see. It's under the surface and I'm not aware of it. So rather than judging my reaction, which I think is what I had been doing and being like, I shouldn't be feeling sick to my stomach and I shouldn't be having such a strong reaction to two former partners wanting to engage with me in a way that is different from what it was a week ago. (laughs) This reaction I'm having makes sense and I don't like it. I don't like feeling this way. I'm having the thought that I should not be feeling this way. I'm having the thought that I should be calm or unaffected or not have such a strong emotional response or a strong physiological response to their behavior. I'm aware that I'm not accepting that this is how my body's reacting. Because I don't like it. It feels uncomfortable. I want to go to the gym. I'm not going to say I want to do my exposure. If you're new to the podcast, uh, I am doing prolonged exposure as part of my ongoing therapy. And it's something that I need to do every single day for about an hour. I need to do that still today. And I'm aware that I really don't do it well if I'm super distracted. And I'm super distracted right now by whatever the fuck this is definitely having the thought that I am like fucking plankton. Plankton in the water column is basically anything that cannot swim against the current. It is at the affect of the current. So there's both phytoplankton, like algae, that just floats along in the current. And then there's zooplankton, so animals that cannot outswim the current. So think jellyfish, really anything in cnidaria, tinafores, that sort of thing. And that's what I feel like. Here these two people come with their super strong currents, and I guess now I'm going this way. And clearly I'm having the thought that 
I don't have a say in how things go. Ah, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> Fucking wise mind, man. So the little kid in the back of the class goes, you actually always have the belief that you don't have a say in how things go. Because you've never really done the work of checking in with yourself. To see what sort of things you want. And how you want your life to look. Because you have the belief that what you want doesn't matter. Fuck you. Okay, okay. So that's a central belief that I have. That it doesn't matter what I want. And that, in fact, it is safer to not want things, to not even check in and know what I want, because I'm not going to get it anyway. And so knowing what I want is a recipe for, hang on, let's use our observe and describe. I'm having the thought that knowing what I want is a recipe for disappointment. I'm having the thought that I won't get what I want. And if I don't get what I want, then what is the point of wanting things? I'm having the thought that it is safer to not want things. That's how I will avoid disappointment. To never check in with what I actually want. Never, to never be aware of what I want. And this makes sense. This is caused. So my family, we, I grew up very poor. And it was a weird type of poverty. It looked from the outside like we weren't poor. My parents were essentially missionaries in the United States. And so they we grew up evangelical and they made money, made a living by donations from people. So our income depended on the generosity of others. And there were months when the only reason we could buy groceries was because somebody put money in an envelope under our windshield wiper. Like, we fixed everything ourselves. I didn't even know that you could hire people to come fix things. <laughs> um, like, you know, a car or electronics or anything that broke, we fixed. And we just generally didn't have new things. Everything were, were hand-me-downs or donations from people. My mom used to say, don't turn your wanter up. Like, your wanter is a dial, how much want you have. Like, don't look at catalogs, don't go window shopping, don't watch commercials, because that would just make you want things. And we couldn't have things, so what was the point of wanting? And of course, then I developed the belief that what I wanted didn't matter, that there was no point in knowing what I wanted, because if I knew what I wanted, I still wasn't going to get it, so I was only going to be disappointed. And the way to avoid disappointment was to not want things. So that, there's a reason I have this belief that what I want doesn't matter. And uh, there's a reason I don't have the practice of actually identifying what I want. So, yeah, it makes sense. We're doing some validation here, clearly. It makes sense that I do not have the practice of wanting things and that I feel like I am at the affect of what other people want. And that as soon as what they want changes, I get whiplash. And it's like a current suddenly switching directions or the, when the tide direction changes. 
Suddenly the water column is moving in a different direction. I'm like, but I didn't want to go this way. And I have the belief that I don't have a say in how my life goes. Fucking fuck. I have the belief that I don't have a say in how my life goes. Okay, well... That's a thought. That is a thought that I am having. It is not fact that I have no say in how my life goes. It is a fact that I'm having the thought that I have no say in how my life goes. And clearly I do have some say in how my life goes. Like right now I am choosing to sit here and record this recording. No one is forcing me to do that. After this, I'm going to go to the gym and throw heavy things around to burn off some of this energy, and nobody's forcing me to do that. Later today, I will choose to eat one of two leftovers that I have, and no one's going to force me to eat one or the other of them. There's, of course, all manner of ways that I have a say in how my life goes. I think it's one of the 7,263 reasons why I like being alone. Because when I'm alone, I have much more of a say in how my life goes. Being around other people feels like suddenly I went from sitting on, on a dock where I'm out of the water and on land and can move around on my own to suddenly being in water and not being able to swim against the current. Like I, I default, I notice myself defaulting to whatever everyone else wants. And that having opinions and having preferences is unsafe. I'm having the thought that having opinions and having preferences is unsafe. I'm also having the thought that I don't know how to identify my opinions and preferences. Like I didn't wake up yesterday thinking that at some point I was going to have to decide whether or not to start working with my former partner again for his company. I was not prepared to make that choice. And of course, I can I can say no. I can say no right off the cuff and then not have to worry about it anymore. And I actually want to take a look at it and see whether or not it works for me. Yeah, I don't know if it does. I'm having the thought that I'm overwhelmed. I've been noticing this actually quite a bit since I've been doing prolonged exposure. Because exposure is an hour and a half session once a week. And I record that session, and then I listen to a portion of that every day between my sessions, on top of also doing an activity, like taking an action that is an action for something that I've been avoiding. And, you know, I'm being fairly vague about it right now. um, That's the general kind of formula for what prolonged exposure looks like. And of course, I go through kind of my greatest hits of memories with my therapist so that we know what what we're discussing in session and what I'm listening to in between sessions. And then, of course, we talk about what I'm avoiding, what activities or things I'm avoiding in my life. And we create a list so that I can start kind of dipping my toe in actually doing those things to rewire my brain to believe that, hey, these memories won't kill me and doing these things that I've been avoiding also won't kill me. So I have felt since I started doing this a little over three months ago, like I'm barely keeping my head above water. 
being asked to do other things or take on new responsibilities or visit friends or help somebody with a project or any of this stuff feels having the thought that it's overwhelming, having the thought that I have such diminished capacity to accomplish any fucking thing. And I don't know if that's actually true. And I'm having the thought that I'm overwhelmed. Oh, and I need to make a pie today for Father's Day. Okay. (sighs) Strangely enough, though, I no longer feel sick to my stomach. So I'm going to sit with this for a while because emotion mind definitely says you need to make a decision right this second, Joy. Thinking mind says, let's mull this over forever. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I think um, I need to, at least with the potential working with my former partner again, I need to get some additional information so I actually know what I'm saying yes or no to. And I still have no fucking clue what to do with other former partner from 15 years ago who is now flirting with me. You do know what to do, Joy. Like, I know what to do. I know the thing to do is to get super, super clear with him and say, hey, what is this? Are you flirting with me? Does your wife know you're doing this? Like, is she okay with this? If you guys are going to have an open relationship, I need to know that she's on board. And this in-between thing doesn't work for me because it doesn't. I'm confused. I don't know what the fuck is happening. But I also have all of these very strong beliefs that like flirting's only fun if it's vague and non-explicit. Like there's supposed to be all this subtext. And I don't pick up on the subtext. I don't know what the fuck is happening. And maybe my I was gonna say recently acquired, recently diagnosed autism. Because as he, who I dated 15 years ago, when we dated, pointed out that I did not pick up on everybody else knew that he was into me, except for me. I was the literal last person to know. So clearly I don't pick up on things. And I am all for polyamory. I myself am also poly. The key is communication, informed and engaged consent, and really clear expectations and boundaries, which would be the key for any relationship. At any rate, my whole point is like, I know what I need from him. And I don't want to ask for it because I have the thought that if I explicitly ask him to be explicit, to be super clear and not to use innuendo and not to use subtext, then I'm ruining his fun. That's a thought I'm having. What the fuck? I am judging that thought. And wise mind... Like, I have these pauses and I kind of sit for a second and that's the fucking kid in the back of class goes, Joy, his fun, his experience is not the only one that matters in this. Your experience also matters. 
is this fun for you? It's fun in the way that like rubbernecking a car accident is fun. Like there's some morbid curiosity. I kind of want to know what happens next. And that is me actually choosing to be plankton. That's me choosing to just drift with whatever he's doing and not actually taking action consistent with what I want. And what I want is clarity. (laughs) And if he's not clear, that's also clarity. It's like if he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, that at least tells me he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. And then I can be explicit. I'm like, great, then stop this because I don't like this. This doesn't feel good for me. The thing to do is to tell this man, this person, former partner from 15 years ago, that this isn't working for me, whatever this is, that I feel confused and uncomfortable, and that I would like clarification. And if he is not able to give me clarification, and or if his clarification actually (laughs) doesn't address my confusion and discomfort, the thing for me to do is to ask him to stop his behavior. And I really don't want to do that. Because I feel very uncomfortable about that. And welcome back to the future. To the land where there are no long protracted pauses. So I want to kind of fill you in on what has happened with those two people since the recording. Regarding my partner from 15 years ago, that one is a bit of a clusterfuck. I will cover this in future episodes because it caused me a lot of distress, a lot of protracted distress over multiple months. Very, very long story made very short. I did ask him if he was flirting with me multiple times. I told him that I wasn't picking up on his subtext multiple times. I asked him to clarify multiple times, and he insisted multiple times that he wasn't flirting with me and that there was no subtext. After several months of this, he did finally admit that he had been flirting with me. He knew at the time that he was flirting with me and that he lied to me. He chose to lie to me multiple times. In hindsight, especially after listening to the recording that I just played, All of this could have been avoided if I'd actually told him straight up that, dude, whatever you're doing, I don't like it, stop. Instead, I had the thought that he was flirting. He told me that he wasn't, so I doubted myself and also judged myself for making an incorrect assumption. And then he would do something else flirtatious and the cycle would repeat. And of course, as you heard at the end of the recording, I didn't want to tell him to stop his behavior. I felt really uncomfortable with that idea. And instead of making that request while also feeling uncomfortable, I chose to not make that request. Oh, learning curves, aren't they fun? And also hindsight, isn't hindsight lovely? But anyway, I will cover that in more detail moving forward because it, again, came up a lot. But I did take action regarding my more recent partner's job offering. I asked him some follow-up questions to get more details And a couple days after the recording that I just played for you, we had a two-hour-long conversation where he described basically what his needs were and how he thought that I could help. I told him I needed some time to think about it, but it didn't take me long to figure out that I didn't want the job. I got stopped from telling him that immediately because I felt guilty saying no, which begs the question, is that guilt justified? So let's take a look at when guilt is justified. 
This is from Emotion Regulation Handout 11, specifically the page on guilt. Guilt fits the facts of the situation whenever your behavior violates your own values or moral code. It's the only time that guilt fits the facts. And I know that turning down a job does not violate my values or moral code. I think I felt guilty, though, because I do have the value of helping people when they ask for help. But the trouble with that is I overextend myself. I say yes, even when helping doesn't actually work for me. And that's an old rut, the the thought rut that if someone asks for help, you must say yes. So I've been trying to work on a new rut, a new thought pattern, specifically for the thought, it's okay for me to say no to a request, even if I am physically capable of doing it. I feel really uncomfortable right now. Like it doesn't feel like like my body's, I think it's anxiety. Like I feel uncomfortable tension, just saying that. It's okay for me to say no to a request, even if I am physically capable of doing it. Because basically, the only rubric that I've used, the only decision-making matrix that I've used when someone asks for help is, am I physically capable of doing that thing? And if I am, I say yes. But there are other things to consider that I haven't been considering that I need to actually add to my decision-making rubric, like Do I have the energy to do that thing? Is it something I'm skilled at? Is it something I want to learn? Is it healthy for me to do that thing? There's a bunch of other questions, but you know, the old puritanical bootstrap thing is that's a thought rut that runs really fucking deep, which is why we're working on the new thought rut. It is okay for me to say no to a request, even if I am physically capable of doing it. So my guilt is not justified. Saying no to a job doesn't violate my own values or moral code, which means it's time for some opposite action. (sighs) I've talked a bit about opposite action in previous episodes. The, The deep one was episode 26, but I've also mentioned it quite a bit in 13 and 17. Oh, and fun aside, if you hear me mention a skill in an episode and you want to know what other episodes mention that skill, there's a way to do that. You head on over to this podcast website, which is therapize.joygerhard.com. It's linked in the description. You head over there and you go to the search icon in the main menu. You can search for the skill that you're interested in and your search results will show every episode where I mention that skill. Huzzah! Yay for the internet. So getting back to opposite action for the guilt of saying no to a job offer from my former partner. Opposite action in a nutshell is a way to short circuit an emotion. I talked earlier in the episode about the e-wheel and that an emotion, the actual wheel itself, is an experience, which is how it feels in my body, an expression, what it looks like to other people, so like body language and behavior, and echoes, which is how that emotion impacts me over time. Once that wheel is spinning, there's ways to short circuit it and stop the wheel. I can use a skill that changes my experience or a skill that changes my expression, or a skill that changes my echoes. And using any of those skills will short-circuit the emotion once it's already started spinning. Opposite action is the skill to use to change the expression. So my behavior, my body language, what it looks like to somebody on the outside. Per Emotion Regulation Handout 7, when your emotions do not fit the facts, or when acting on your emotions is not effective, Acting opposite all the way will change your emotional reactions. 
opposite action works because per emotion regulation handout 10, every emotion has an action urge. We can change the emotion by acting opposite to its action urge. Ultimately, doing opposite action stops the emotion wheel from continuing to spin. So for me, with this job offer, guilt had me immediately wanting to just agree to take the job. So I decided to put a pause on it and ask for some time and then get back to him. But even then, guilt had me wanting to say no, but apologize a ton and justify my choice and overexplain myself. So <laughs> time for opposite action. What is the opposite action for guilt? And this is from Emotion Regulation Handout 11 again, specifically the page on guilt. Opposite actions for guilt. Do the opposite of your action urges. For example, number one, make public your personal characteristics or your behavior with people who won't reject you. Number two, repeat the behavior that sets off guilt over and over without hiding the behavior from those who won't reject you. All the way opposite actions for guilt include number three, no apologizing or trying to make up for a perceived transgression. Number four, take in all the information from the situation. And number five, change your body posture. Look innocent and proud. Lift your head. Puff up your chest. Maintain eye contact. Keep your voice tone steady and clear. Which is the exact opposite behavior of somebody who feels guilty, right? Like when I feel guilty, I want to like hang my head and not make eye contact, which is hard enough already because of autism. But like I don't want to like look in the direction of the person or in this case, because this is all happening via text message, I don't want to look at the message that I sent. I don't want to like, I don't want people to know about what I've done. I want to hide. I want to apologize. I want to justify. I want to explain all of that shit. And I especially want to just avoid saying no, which I did. I didn't do opposite action all the way because I didn't do it immediately. I sat on it for a couple of weeks. I told him that I needed some time to think about it and that I'd get back to him. But after a couple of days, I knew I wanted to say no. And I didn't do it because I felt really fucking guilty about saying no. So I dragged my feet. But finally, after a couple of weeks, I did message him. And it took me like three or four iterations to come up with this. And this is what I sent him. Hey, I've been meaning to get back to you about the job. I don't think it's a good fit for me right now. I figured I should let you know so you could hire someone else if you need to. I appreciate the offer, though. And I intentionally chose not to apologize, not to try to make up for it. Like, hey, I can help you find someone else. Uh, not to explain myself. I just said no. I messaged my friends and told them that I had turned it down. And I kept going back to the message and looking at it because I really wanted to avoid looking at it. I felt really guilty for having sent it in the first place. So I kept going back and opening it up again and reading it again and again and again. And eventually it took him like a day, but he did get back to me and he said, okay, thanks for letting me know. And I took in that information. <laughs> I took in the fact, like I paid attention to the fact that he didn't scream at me. He didn't message me how disappointed he was. He didn't get mad at me for taking so long. He didn't even ask me why. He didn't ask for an explanation at all. He just said, okay, thanks for letting me know. So I intentionally like took in that information. Like brain, remember this. Notice this. The thing you were really afraid about didn't happen. And it all felt very, very weird. I don't really understand it. And that's what happened. So there you have it. I don't really have anything else to add aside from thank you for listening. It's always a pleasure. And... I'm just gonna end this super abrupt. 
This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.